0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. My name's Ryan. I'm on staff here. Uh, Excited this morning to talk to you uh, about our new series and what's going on there. But first, I want to say, if you are a visitor, We are so glad you're here, and we would just ask that at some point during the service today, you would grab that card right underneath your seat and just give us some of your information, as much as you're comfortable with, and we would love to follow up with you. Um, Just get to know your story, tell you more about Stonegate, what's going on here, and just all the life that happens throughout the week, not just here on Sundays. Uh, so go ahead and fill that out, and when the offering plate comes by in a little while, you can drop it on in there. Um, so if you are new, also today we're starting a new series for the month of July called Life of a Disciple, and here's the reason why. Even if you're a Christian or not, you're probably familiar with the word disciple, right? It's got some context, but it's one of those words like leadership, disciple, some of those that everyone has a general understanding, but there's not a lot of clarity on it. And so as a church, we just want to stop and pause and say to ourselves, what does it honestly, practically look like to be a disciple? If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, what does that look like? And so hopefully over the next month, we'll flesh that out. We've got a lot of good stuff to talk about and excited about that. So before we jump in today, let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Jesus, thanks for this morning. Um, once again, thanks for all those little kids and their moms and dads. And I just echo Kevin's prayer that you would provide them the grace and stamina and encouragement and wisdom that they need along the way. And speaking of disciples, what an incredible privilege those moms and dads get to make disciples. And may we as a church aid them, support them, encourage them, and surround them with all the grace that they'll need in the midst of that. And Lord, may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you as we look at your word. In your name, amen. So we're going to be in Luke 9 today. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn there. But if you don't have a Bible, here's the best news. There's one right underneath your seat. So you can just pull that out. You can follow along. We're going to be on page 563 of your Pew Bible. But if you don't want to do that, we'll also put the words right up here as well. So either way, you're going to have access to where we're at and be able to track along with what we're looking at today. Um, So once again, going into the word disciple, you think about definitions matter a lot, right? There's gotta be those things, especially the most important things, they have to be defined. Definitions matter greatly, especially they determine our destination or the outcome of something. Um, You guys maybe have heard the phrase, uh, define the relationship." So years ago, uh, when my wife and I, we first met, we were hanging out in a college group all summer long, and we just had a really good rapport. I thought we were getting along really well. I thought there was maybe some chemistry, something there. We'd have really good conversation connecting with one another, and I figured I needed to define the relationship. I needed to see what this was. Are are we heading down a path where we're going to get dating? Is, Is there marriage in the future? Like all those questions come into your mind, like what is this? Where is this going? Where do we stand and the more important the relationship, the more it needs to be defined, right? I mean, if you want to know where, you're, where you stand, you gotta ask. So, what did I do? I went to where Crystal worked. She worked at a bakery at the time. And bakeries really weren't my scene, but I went there because she was there. And I ordered like a, a sparkling Italian soda type deal, and I sat there for about four hours just trying to bide my time waiting for her to get off work. I promise it's not creepy or stalkerish, but it was just, it, it worked out. So she finally gets off and I say, hey, can we grab a cup of coffee? And she's like, sure. And I'm like, this is great. We're, you know, we're going to grab a cup of coffee. Maybe I'll ask her out on a date and see where this is going. And so I'm just getting up the nerve to ask her like, hey, do you want to go on a date, make this official, whatever that looks like. And she says, hey, before you say anything, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you as a friend. And that was just one of those defining moments. I I mean, immediately I knew where I stood. It wasn't where I wanted to stand, but it's where I stood. And defining that relationship mattered a lot. Kind of broke my heart. Um, But I recovered. You know, persistence pays off, guys. Uh, Just a note. So, but defining the relationship. And I would say for all of us in this room, and and, uh, A.W. Tozer says this, the most important thing about all of us is what we think about God is what we think about God, our relationship with God. Think about that. If there is a God, and there's a God that loves you and knows you, your relationship with him matters more than anything else in your life. So defining that relationship. And what I love about Jesus is you study him, as you look at his life throughout the Gospels, as you look at his ministry, he's always defining the relationship. Jesus cuts through the pretense. He cuts through the superficial. He goes past the surface in order to truly define the relationship, which is so loving. It's kind of him. Jesus doesn't let people off the hook. He doesn't let us kind of go through the motions or pretend, but he wants to define the relationship. A few quick examples of that. Think of the the Gospel of John, just that narrative. He meets Nicodemus, who's this big-time religious leader in the middle of the night. And Nicodemus is coming to him with questions. What does it look like to have a relationship with you? What does that mean to have a relationship with God? And what does Jesus do? He defines the relationship in a very specific way. He's like, if you want to know who I am, you got to be born again. And that freaks Nicodemus out. He's blown away by it. But Jesus defines the relationship. If you want to know me, if you want to know God, you need a very new heart. You need a new nature. He's defining the relationship. That's what it's going to look like for you, Nicodemus. The very next chapter, which is just shortly thereafter, Jesus runs into the woman at the well. And what does he do with the woman at the well? She's going to ask him some surfacey questions, and then she's going to dive into the theological. She's going to want to see if Jesus is up to speed on his systematic theology. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about the Old Testament? Where should people worship? What do you think about my people? What do you think about the Israelites? And Jesus just pushes right through that. He says, we're not going to talk theology. We're going to talk your heart. Why are you here in the middle of the day? Oh, because you live in shame, right? What would it look like if you had a living water? What would it look like if there was hope for your weary soul? He defines the relationship. So much so that she goes back home and tells everyone about this man named Jesus and the relationship that she has with him. Amazing, isn't it? And what does Jesus do with the Pharisees? As you read all throughout the Gospels, here's what you see time and time again. Jesus just totally busts them up. In a way that I think is super loving because these are guys that think they know the most about God. I mean, look at your Bible for a second. It's got the Old Testament filled with 612 laws. And these guys had all those laws memorized. And they lived them out and executed them. they were way more moral and pious than anyone in this room will ever be. And Jesus goes to them. and I mean, just think about what he says to them time and time again. You don't know who God is. I mean, that's like telling Ronald McDonald, you don't know what a hamburger is. I mean, they're like, are you kidding me? We're the God experts. We're the theology experts. But Jesus doesn't let them stay in that deception. Rather, he defines the relationship. He defines it. What I would say, too, when we think about discipleship, time and time again, there's a defining moment for us to ask. Is Jesus come just to fix us up a little bit? Has he come just to give us better manners, to give us some theological insight, to tell us some helpful tips and tricks for living? And it's like, No. The gospel, I mean, really think about this for a second. Christians, this is what we believe. Can you believe sometimes how this sounds to the world? We believe that Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, showed us the miraculous, then dies a death and rises from the grave. I mean, if that doesn't have massive implications for what our lives look like, then really what does it say about the gospel that we believe in the Jesus that we follow? But yet at the same time, what it looks like to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, to often go into the places and spaces where it's super hard to follow Jesus, we can't do that. We run our race and eventually we find ourselves tired and thrust out. Maybe some of you guys have tried the morality treadmill and you found yourself exhausted. And at the end of that, Jesus says there's grace upon grace. And while I'm no longer physically present with you, I've given you the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence in your life. And the Holy Spirit has come to aid you and comfort you and show you and counsel you what it looks like for you to grow and become more like Jesus. Paul, in Romans 8, uses the language that all of your life, all of your life, from when you woke up this morning to your Monday morning commute to all that you'll do throughout this week, all of your life is one big laboratory where you're slowly and ongoingly being conformed to become more like Jesus. So what's God doing tomorrow morning? What's God doing on Wednesday afternoon? What's God doing on Friday night? What's he doing with that low-grade stress that you always live with, with the pains and the sufferings and the celebrations and the trials and the obstacles? What's he doing in all those moments? He's pressing like a good potter into your soul and molding you to become more like Jesus. That's discipleship. I want to give you guys a definition. We'll have it up here on the screen. But that's really what we're talking about. It's not so much even a program it's not church attendance only. It's not just having a good quiet time, but rather all of your life you begin to see as spiritual and having implications for your process of being more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that gives meaning and substance and weight to all of your life that often feels so mundane and ordinary. Where is God? God, what are you doing? God, do you really care about that? Yes, yes, and yes, because all of your life, he's shaping you, conforming you, and molding you By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God's up to. If you want to know what God's doing in your life, where he's working, it's everywhere. And ongoingly, progressively, and often very slowly, we become more like Jesus until the day we see him face to face and we're glorified. And so this gives us a category. This gives us a a working definition to kind of look at three different guys in Luke 9 who come to Jesus and they want to follow him we're going to see what Jesus says to them. First though, look at Luke 9 verse 23. This is what it says. I want just to frame this out a little bit of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So who is he saying this? Who's anyone in our verse? Who's anyone? If, if He says, if anyone, if anyone, well anyone is everyone. This is the beautiful message of the gospel. It's radically inclusive. It's not for those who got their act together. It's not those who have the, the, the best socioeconomic status. It's not those who come from the best families. It's not those who have the best educations. It's for all the down and outers. It's for all the broken people. It's for all the weary people. It's for all the people that have tried everything else and still say, I don't know what I'm looking for. I need redemption. I need rescue. I need grace. That's who the gospel's for. It's radically inclusive. Do you see that? For 2,000 years, the gospel has gone forward to every people, every group, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And what's made it be able to cross every cultural boundary is this message of grace and that it's for everyone. That Jesus knows the condition of every human soul and he knows exactly what we need. And he says, here, anyone, what you need, what you need more than anything is me. And he even says that, you got to come after me, come after me. And this is not in a way like, oh, I've got some duties that I have to do. I have to show up and read my Bible. I have to show up and go to church. I have to fill in the blank, whatever it is. This is a passionate pursuit. This is, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. You know, kind of like waiting at a bakery for four hours. When you're interested in something, it's amazing how resourceful you become. And so what I want you to see here, though, is that Jesus is not using language, come after me. The Greek there is not language of duty, but it's language of desire. It's a passionate pursuit. When you think of following Jesus, does it feel more dutiful or does it feel like delight? That is such a defining thing when we diagnose and look at where our hearts are. When I look at my heart, there are days where it feels like duty, and I beg Jesus, Jesus, turn this heart of stone into a heart that would have affections for you. The Christian life is absolutely impossible as long as it remains one of duty and never turns to delight. And here's where the tension comes in. We have to learn to begin to deny ourselves. And that's what we're going to see even in our passage today. Some of the guys are really struggling with that very thing. Where and how are they going to lose their life so that they may find it? So pick it up in verse 57 with me. We're going to go down a little bit from verse 23. and It will be up here on the screen. So the first guy, he comes to Jesus, this is the first interaction. As they're walking along the road, a man said to him, "I will follow you wherever you go." Wow. That's a bold statement, isn't it? It seems like this guy's all in. He's probably even got a t-shirt that says "All In." Imagine, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he's got two of them cuz he's been here a while. Uh, but he's he's all in. And he's saying, oh, "I'll go wherever you go, Jesus. I don't even know what you're about. I don't even know about that cross thing in your future. I don't know about any of this, but I just know I'll follow you wherever you go. So the rhetoric is great. He's talking a great game. Verse 57, though, look at that. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus is going right into his heart. Jesus always sees the heart. Once again, Jesus cuts past the rhetoric, he cuts past the pretense, and he sees the heart. He most likely sees in this man someone who's going to struggle with comfort, comfort and convenience. Because when he begins to follow Jesus, there's certain things that he's gonna give up, there's certain things it's gonna cost, there's certain things it's gonna look like for him to have to deny in order to truly follow Jesus. That's why Jesus used the language, count the cost, You're going to have to deny yourself. And on the other side of that denial, you will find life. But in the middle of that, there's a direct conflict often between our desire to follow Jesus and our desire to be comfortable. And here's what I would say. We're Americans, right? We're the most comfortable people in the history of humanity. No one's ever been as comfortable as us. I mean, think about all that we have. I mean, we're we're the country that invented something called the Snuggie. You know, and what's that's the ultimate creature comfort. It's like while I reach for the remote, I, I don't want my arm to be cold. So I, I don't want to like, if I'm reaching outside the blanket, even then I need my arm to be warm. That's such an American creature comfort thing. And here's the thing about comfort. Comfort is not bad. I don't want anyone going home today saying what I'm saying is be as uncomfortable as you can for Jesus. It's not his message. But when comfort becomes a God thing instead of a good thing, it becomes the worst thing. And when comfort becomes your God, it pushes you away from truly being able To follow Jesus. And inside of comfort are all these hidden theological declarations, aren't there? One is that comfort teaches us as something inside of our heart that pulls and says, risk is wrong. Risk is wrong. I've got this, I've obtained this, I'm holding on to this, this feels good. And if Jesus is gonna push me beyond the boundary, I'm not going to go there because comfort is my God. Comfort is also a denial. That heaven is as good as God tells us it is. That we really can't trust God when he tells us what heaven will be like. And so ultimately what we try to do is we try to lean into the future, grab a piece of heaven, and pull it into today. We say, I know there's a future heavens and a new earth, and you're coming to make all things new, Jesus. But if that doesn't really happen, if that's not really true, let me pull a little bit of that into mine now and hold on to that. And there's so much. I mean, everything in the American narrative teaches you that's true. Save for retirement. Do all you can to make your house as comfortable as possible. Save up all you can get. And then ride out your last 20 years with as much ease as possible. But yet, following Jesus is the exact opposite. He says sacrifice is greater than comfort. And there are things, there are parts about Jesus you can only learn on the other side of comfort I mean think about any athlete there's there's massive discomfort that comes with the training process think about any relationship if you're really going to learn what someone's like there are moments you're going to have to get uncomfortable and be honest about who you really are and where your life is really at all good all that meaning all that really significant stuff of life comes by going past worshiping comfort I mean, just think about it this way. And I just want to ask you guys, and I'm right there with you. So I'm preaching myself this morning. I just feel like I'm letting you guys listen in. But convenience, comfort, they really are such idols in our country. And you're taught, we're taught to just go after those things, to accomplish those things, to worship those things. And really, sometimes they stand in contrast. to: Is Jesus good enough? Does Jesus really care? Is he really going to come through? Is knowing more of who Jesus is and seeing him show up in my life when I've made an uncomfortable step, is it really going to be worth it? So think about this for a second. Where is it showing up in your life? Where is Jesus pressing you to push past comfort? For some of you, it's going to be sharing the gospel. With someone at work that you guys have had a casual relationship for a long time, but it's never gone to the spiritual. It's never gone to, hey, what do you think about Jesus? I would love to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Because that feels a little uncomfortable. It could get awkward, right? For some of you, it might be jumping into a home group. When you think about showing up to someone's house that you've never been to or making that step, that just feels really uncomfortable, right? But on the other side of that, there's meaning and connection. Here's what I'd say about home groups. They're always going to be like junior high dances at first. But the more you lean into it, you know, and get people onto the floor and participating, the better it gets. So you just got to lean into that uncomfortableness. And on the other side of that is such good, significant, meaningful relationships. Or what about with your stuff? I mean, I I know where we live. We live in an area where there's often abundance, where many people have extra space, where they have extra stuff. And what do you do with that stuff? Do you hold on to it to be comfortable? Are you willing to hand it over to Jesus and see what He would have for it? Jesus, take that spare bedroom for the single mom. Jesus, go ahead and use that other car to bless that family. Jesus, I want to be as open-handed as I can with my possessions because my comfort does not come from my possessions, but rather it comes from you, Jesus. Maybe it's with what you consume. Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe it's your whatever it might be. But I would just say comfort makes a, a terrible king, and it often eventually lets us down. But rather on the other side of that is this meaningful connection and relationship with Jesus where we get to experience him in a new, fresh, and vibrant, and dependent way that's altogether transformative for us. Let's look at our second guy. Verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. So Jesus is telling this guy, come and follow me. Once again, the message is radically inclusive. Go ahead, come follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. A little harsh, right? Come on, Jesus. He just wants to go home for a funeral, right? And then he'll be back. Well, commentators and scholars will tell us that's, that's, that's not what's going on in this passage. What's really taking place is, is you'll notice that key operative word there, first, first. So when Jesus tells him to come follow, what he does is he puts a priority already in place. Jesus, I would love to follow you. Jesus, I plan on following you, but first. But first. What an important statement that really is. But first. And here's what we know, too. If you know anything about ancient culture that Jesus was speaking at this time, most likely this man's father wasn't dying and he wasn't even sick. But rather, if you were a son, in order to gain your inheritance, you did need to be there until your father did pass away. So what he's really saying is, let me stay around my family, let me tend to my affairs, let me make sure my career's going well, and once my dad dies and I get my inheritance and I have all the possessions and stuff I need, then I'll come follow you. What he's doing is he's putting off following Jesus. He's saying, I have good intentions, but there's gonna be a delay in my obedience, Maybe you hear that man's excuse and you think to yourself, man, there are places in my life where I say to God, but first. But first, God, let me see how my career advances. God, I would really love to obey you in this season, but first let me get through college. God, I would love to connect with those people and mentor that young couple and to serve, but first let me raise my kids what Jesus is doing is always, time and time again, is saying, what has priority in your life? What's the but first? I want to follow you, but first. Is it your career? Is it your own ambitions? Is it your vocation? Is it your education? What is it? Here's what I know about all the but firsts in our life. They never really go away, do they? Even when we say work is crazy right now. You know what I always want to tell people when they tell me that? It's always going to be crazy. It's not getting easier. You know, when I talk to young people and they're like, I'm so busy. I'm like, just wait till someone gives you a couple kids and a full-time job. Like, it's going to get busier. There's always going to be a but first. So you settle. I settle in my heart. What takes priority? What takes precedence? See, Jesus is saying to every one of us, not someday, but today. Not someday, but today. Will you follow today? Um, I I pastored up in Seattle um, near university for quite a while, and it was always fascinating for me to hear the excuses and just the good intentions of life creep out and choke away people's vibrant relationship with Jesus. And the world has a way of enticing us toward things that are away from God and pulling our hearts in different directions and Jesus is saying I've got to be priority here's our third guy in verse 61 read this still another said I will follow you Lord but first there's that phrase again let me go back and say goodbye to my family Jesus replied no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What Jesus knows about this guy is he can see into his heart and he can see a temptation that if you look back, there's going to be a desire to go back. J.C. Ryle, a famous Anglican theologian, he said those who tend to look back tend to go back. Those who look back tend to go back. And what Jesus is saying is there's a desire for you to go back home, that same crowd that you've always run with, that same social circle, that same peer group, that same family dynamic to go back. And as you go back, realize there's going to be a temptation, a pull for you to change your conviction, for you to move away from obedience. Uh, there's a, just a great war illustration that's often told and it was written about a lot in, in especially Greek literature which is generals, when they would go invade another country and their their boats would come upon shore, those generals would often burn the boats. They would set them on fire. For they knew their soldiers, if their soldiers thought there was a way back, they could not truly go forward. That if they wanted the soldiers to be all in, to truly move forward, to see this as their reality, what was honestly in front of them and their option, they had to take away what was behind them. Jesus is saying that followers don't look longingly at the past. There is a difference. We look and we reflect, and we often understand what the Lord was up to. But is there a longing? Is there an enticement in your heart for what was, for what you miss? How hard it is to go through life looking only through the rearview mirror. I mean, I know not not one person in this room today drove here by looking through the rearview mirror, right? I sure hope not probably would have been a few crashes. But if you go through life looking through the rear view mirror of longing, that's where so much regret settles in and becomes a residue upon your soul. Nostalgia really is often pining for the past and thinking that your best days are gone rather than trusting the Lord for what he has in front of you. Uh, Once again, I just talk to college students all the time and there was just this desire like, I'll I'll follow Jesus. I really want to do that. But man, I I want to live it up in college first. And I want to have those years kind of in the memory bank that I can savor and enjoy. It's just this call. I mean, Jesus is saying, let's just get real. Let's just cut through the pretense today, okay? If, If you're prioritizing, if I'm primary, if I'm central in your life, you will set your affections and your directions upon me and move forward with what I have for you. So what about you? Where are you tempted to look back? For some of us, there are deep patterns of addiction and sin that often we look back at longingly. For some of us, it's a past relationship before we came to Christ or even since we've been a Christian that we look back longingly on. Nostalgia feels like a balm to a soul that's tired and weary and frustrated. Jesus is saying, set your eyes before me. Once again, it's a theological declaration Jesus, my best days are not behind me because my best days are in the future because I'm in you. I'm in Christ. Think about the Israelites. Most of you guys are familiar with that story, whether you're a Christian or not. The Israelites, I mean, I I can't even get my head around this. I mean, you are in slavery. I mean, literal slavery. Someone is cracking a whip. Someone's killing your co-workers on a daily basis while you're forced into hard labor. You are given almost no food and you're in bondage. And God, Yahweh shows up and he delivers you. He shows his character and he shows his nature and he shows his provision and he shows his love by bringing you out of slavery, by bringing you out of bondage. And what happens to the Israelites once they get into the desert and things get a little confusing? They look back. In fact, so much so that they tell God, they're like, if only we were back in slavery, if only we were back in bondage, that'd be so much better than being your people, God. We are not much different, are we? there's so much in my heart at times that wants to put the shackles and, sh- and, and chains of sin right back on myself rather than to trust God with what often feels unknown. But yet that's where all the good stuff happens. In the desert, when you walk by faith, not by sight, when you trust God and say, God, here's what I do know about you. I don't have all the answers. I don't have the roadmap, but I know you're good. And I know you're not gonna abandon us. And I know you love me. And even when everything, circumstances may point against that, I'm going to trust in that reality. And that you're using all these things for my good. To conform me, to shape me, and to mold me into a vessel, into an adopted child that will bring maximum honor to you. (laughs) That's what God's up to in all of our lives. So here's the question as we think about discipleship. Is Jesus central or is he ornamental in your life? Is he central or is he ornamental? I mean, you just gotta think about the things Jesus says. As I said earlier, he's radically inclusive, right? The message of the gospel, who does it go forward to? Everyone, everyone. But yet he's radically exclusive at the same time. Radically exclusive. In fact, he says such exclusive things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That doesn't leave a lot of room for him to be on the margins, does it? That doesn't leave a lot of room for him to be one of many. It means he needs to be your one and only. And when you make God one of many, especially with other idols and priorities and passions in your life, you're always going to find yourself dissatisfied. I'm convinced so many of us are spiritually dry, And find ourselves going, where is God? And God, why don't I experience you? And God, why don't you show up? Because it's not because God isn't there, but because we don't really want to follow. Follow the places where we don't have all the answers, where everything's not clear, where it's not all going to make sense, but Jesus is there waiting to meet us. The Christian life is incredibly hard, but it's incredibly worth it. So is Jesus central or is he ornamental? G.K. Chesterton, a great theologian from the early 20th century, he said this. I'll come up here on the screen for you to see. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Christianity has not been, found, not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. So here's the thing. I think a lot of us, we get a, a dusting of Christianity. We get a dusting of Jesus. And then we wonder why he's not that satisfying. He's saying you got to go all in. I've got to be primary. I've got to have the priority. I've got to be preeminent in your life. Why? Because I'm the God of the universe, and I made you, and your soul will always be restless until you find rest in me, as St. Augustine said. See, there's a lot in our lives that are just going to wear us down, right? Do you guys ever find yourself just feeling a little weary, tired? Burdened. The the, the opposite of, of, of love is not hate. Do you guys know that? The opposite of love is, is just apathy. It's just apathy. What apathy is, is I'm not even gonna give you my attention. Hate at least requires some energy. And so what does Jesus do when he comes across a church in Revelation 3 that is quite apathetic? That has tried actually to say, we'll do this Jesus thing, but he's not gonna have priority. And he's not going to be first, and he's not going to be primary. Jesus says, I wish you guys would just hang it up. I'd just rather spit you out and be done with you rather than just keep going through this charade. I mean, the reason it's not working, the reason it's not clicking, is because there's a disconnect between what it means to make Jesus primary and central and to just pretend that he can be ornamental. Jesus won't settle for it. And here's why. One, because he's worthy. Once again, he's the God of the universe. And he made you. He's worthy of primacy in your life. But two, the more meaningful the relationship, the more intimate and exclusive it will be. So why does does God demand such exclusivity? In fact, this is often one of the critiques that the world will have against Christianity. It feels so exclusive. You guys are so exclusive. And it's like, you're right, because God's not a force. He's not a moral code. He's a person. And the more intimate the relationship, the more exclusive it will be. Think about a marriage, for example a husband and a wife becoming one. Imagine if like four other people tried to run up in there. Like get out, you're disrespecting the whole deal because of how intimate and personal that relationship is, the more exclusive it needs to be. And Jesus wants absolute exclusivity with you. He won't tolerate other idols. He won't tolerate other competitors. He wants exclusivity because he's a person to be known and loved, not a moral code to be obeyed, not a law to be followed not a religious activity to go through the motions of. So my prayer, even for Stonegate, is that we wouldn't be the church of Laodicea. We wouldn't be lukewarm. But rather, we'd give ourselves in priority and passion and affections to Jesus. That where Jesus calls us to step out of our comfort and our convenience, we would do that. That the places in my life and your life right now where Jesus is calling you to step past comfort, you would do that. So let me ask you, what is Jesus, before you walk out of this room today, what is Jesus competing for in your life, competing with in your life? Is it status? Is it something you're hoping to achieve? Is it someone's approval or permission of you? Is it security and comfort? Is there something you're trying to obtain and when you think you do, you'll have your little slice of heaven? Are there disappointments and frustrations and hurts in your life that in reality to lean into, to go into those discomforts and see if Jesus might be on the other side of them? You say, no, Jesus, not that door. No, Jesus, not that relationship. No, Jesus, not that subject. You can have all of this, but don't ask about that one. What really gets you excited? What do you dream about? What do you hope for? What has preeminence in your affections and desires? Because here's the thing, we'll never make it through this life if we just think this is duty rather than delight. There's got to be something in us that just says, God, I want more of you. I've got to have more of you. Tim Keller wrote a great book, Counterfeit Gods. I would just recommend to everyone in the room. And he just says, diagnose yourself regularly. What gets you excited? There's going to be a good connection between that and what you really love the most. So here's Jesus, just this beautiful invitation to everyone. And if you're not a Christian today, this invitation's for you. Come and follow me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And not only that, but then I'll begin to make you new. You don't even have to do it yourself. But rather, I'll be the one who transforms you. I'll be the one who changes you. Because I'm not just coming to polish you up and give you some new manners, but I'm coming to give you a new life. I'm coming to make you new. And so all of your life, Is this big process in which you are being conformed to become more like Jesus until you look Him in the face on your day of glory? There is no theoretical relationship with Jesus. And as long as you try that, you're you're going down a dead end road. It's always gonna be experiential. It's always gonna involve your heart. It's always gonna involve your actions. As we look at the Old Testament narrative, one thing you see beyond a shadow of a doubt is that all of it, all of it is filled with stories and commands for people to follow. Abraham, leave your village and trust me as you move into the promised land. Noah, go ahead and have everyone think you're a wacko and begin building an ark. Moses, go ahead and follow me out into the desert and trust me as I lead you and these people. It's always an invitation to follow. All the good stuff, all the fun stuff, all the exciting stuff of life is found in following Jesus. Even when it's hard, even when the answers aren't right there, and even when it requires us to get quite uncomfortable. And so my prayer, my prayer is that we, as, as the people of Stonegate, would lean into that. We just realize we have a God who loves us, and because he loves us, you're totally free. You're free in Christ to go and follow and serve and put him first. And he'll give you that new heart. He'll stir your affections as you lean in and you trust him. What would that look like for us, church, if we did that? If we were that kind of people? Nothing makes me more excited to think about. Let's pray. Jesus, only you can change a heart. Only you can give new life. Only you can give us new desires and affections. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would do that right now, that right in this very moment that you would be stirring in the lives of everyone in this room in a significant way where they could see how they could have more of you, that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glorious grace, and that your grace would be sufficient. It would be more than enough. It would be all satisfying for all the trials and struggles and temptations that would come our way. And God, I just ask for all of us who are in this moment right now, and we feel a little weary, we feel dry, we feel tired, that you would reignite inside all of us a passion and enthusiasm to return to you, to repent and follow. And that we would be sensitive to that still small voice that would show us exactly where that is for us. Lord, you've been exceptionally great to us. You have loved us, and that's why we are able to love you. And so, God, thank you for your grace, and thank you for making us a people who are your followers. And may we boldly live this out and tell the world all about it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.